0: Welcome to Meetings with Remarkable Educators. This podcast is brought to you in part by you, our friends and supporters at patreon.com slash remarkableeducators. Each podcast is a dialogue between me, Ba Lovemore, and an educator who sees the greatness in their students and touches the whole of their being. These educators defy generalizations, so here's a little bit about what they've done and how I know them. Holistic educators' commitment is, well, holistic. Their constituencies include student, family, community, and society. They understand that every moment is a learning moment and that caring for all constituencies brings success to each of them. It's particularly important for administrators and heads of school to embody this approach. They decide how to allocate resources, how to engage the greater community, and how to provide parent support. Debbie Millen never wavers in her holistic commitment. We'd known of one another for years, but we'd never met. We shared the goodwill of many colleagues. So, it was with joyful anticipation that I came to our podcast appointment. I was struck immediately by her thoughtful, calm gaze and the smile that seemed ready to welcome me. I realized at once that we had much to share. As it turned out, we could have dialogued all day long about holistic education. Over the past 20 years, Debbie has held a variety of roles both within the education world and beyond. A common thread through all of her experiences is a deep commitment to community building and engagement, authentic learning and living, and systems thinking and design. She's excited to continue weaving that thread as Wingra's head of school. Before joining Wingra in 2016, Debbie was head of school for nine years at the Bellwether School, a holistic elementary school in Vermont that is closely aligned with Wingra's educational philosophy. She also taught at Bellwether and worked as the operations manager prior to leading the school. In the late 1990s, she served as the director of the Play Care Center, a play-based preschool that celebrated children's sense of wonder and curiosity. While working at the Mathematical Association of America in Washington, D.C., Debbie collaborated with university professors to define novel teaching methods to strengthen mathematics achievement in minority high school students. Besides her work in education, Debbie and her husband, Aaron, a chef, opened and led a restaurant and bakery market in Vermont. Both businesses were committed to local artisan foods and farmers and educating consumers about the importance of supporting sustainable agricultural practices. She also worked in the field of biomechanics, designing prosthetics for children, and studying Tai Chi gait in young and elderly adults. Debbie is committed to very simple human technologies like listening, speaking from the heart, slowing down, breathing, and connecting to nature in order to support authentic relationships, a deeper sense of self, an essential shift in consciousness, and aligned living practices. She enjoys exploring new ways to empower and inspire students and adults to gain awareness of themselves, others, and the world around them. Her guiding question How do we create the conditions for everyone in our community to know that they belong, they matter, they are seen, and their perspectives and gifts valued? When not in school, Debbie might be found out in nature, reading, traveling, hiking, practicing yoga and meditation, or sometimes just being, and of course, soaking in precious time. With Aaron, so um, so we were chatting at lunch, and everything you said was blowing my mind. Mm. And um, so first, there is how many students in in the school?
1: So the school I'm currently at it has 130 students in kindergarten through eighth grade.
0: 130, and is it privately funded?
1: It is tuition driven, so it's tuition a private driven. independent school. Yes.
0: And other than the more well-known brands like Waldorf and Montessori, that is the most students I know in a tuition-driven holistic school. Mm. However, did you do that?
1: Well, lucky for me, I've, I arrived there with uh, at, you know, a school that had a very strong foundation in these approaches. Uh, it was founded in the early 70s. Uh, by five women.
0: Who, I was remembering Madison in the late 60s and early <laughs> 70s. I yes. mean, I do go back that far.
1: Yes, Madison, a very forward thinking town. Education is uh, woven into many conversations throughout the town, whether you're actually in education or not. The university has a tremendous presence. And these five women, in the early '70s, wanted something different. Uh, they wanted a school that, where learning was joyful and experiential, where the, the soul of the teacher was nourished and taken care of alongside the children's, where uh, we weren't driven by you know absolute you know benchmarks and core curricular ideas, but rather by the will and the interests and passions of the community members, the children the teachers, the parents, whatever's happening in the community. So,
0: Well, you know that in my history, I've had learning centers and schools, and I always found, and it was always tuition-driven, and I've always found the parents being the most difficult. And when we started the last one, I said, okay, we're going to do natural learning relationships and all kinds of things for the parents, and I thought they would be lining up for that kind of information and to so they would understand everything going on, and it was very, very difficult. So how do, do you keep the parents involved, up to date, and uh, so in touch with what you do?
1: It's mm. a great question, and I think it's an ongoing uh, practice, because once we think we have a group of parents that understand it, that get it, that... It It resonates with their way of being, right? The 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 years roll on, and we find that we are constantly needing to either revisit uh, concepts that we've shared and theories with parents, or being a progressive school, so a school that is evolving and growing as an organism. Uh, Some of the things we do shift. So we find that in our natural way of growing and shaping, that with that comes this important education piece. So. We have – I also – simultaneously, I just want to mention that there is a trust component that is necessary between the parents and the organization. And and it's no different in some ways than if I – if I have a, an issue, I need a lawyer for or a doctor for, right? I don't need to understand every single piece of the law to my core in order to trust. That I have to build something there in that relationship. So we're asking parents to trust in the the, the offerings in the building, the teachers. Um, knowledge and expertise um, and their passion to teach in this holistic way. And if they have any questions, if they have concerns or any doubts that creep up with this approach, um, that the doorway is, the door is open.
0: Many parents come with fear. Mm -hmm. And this is, especially in the last uh, 25 years or whatever, fear has become much more prevalent in our world. And their fears are, will my child fit in? Will they succeed in various schools? And that sort of thing. Do they address that with you? Do you address that fear with them? How does that work?
1: We, that's a great point. Um, society is, you know, there's so many things are tossed at us and um, creating an environment where we are just reacting constantly. And what we're trying to do at Wingra School is get ahead of some of these things. So just as we would with children, this proactive um, opportunities, you know, we want to let families know what their experience might be like at the school, that in kindergarten and first grade, or in our youngest classrooms, this is what the parent experience may look and feel like. And as you go through the years, mention some of these things that could come up that we've noticed as trends in in, uh, enrollment, where some families do, they start to second guess, they start to wonder, is this working? They noticed their neighbor's children coming home with homework, or uh, even their child themselves expressing, oh, but I want to I want to ride on a bus or I want to do X, Y, Z that's happening in a more traditional setting and how to navigate that, how to prepare them for that, just um, as I would hope someone would do for me with something that could be. And not to find it so much that we're inducing this fear either. Um, I think of holistic practice, obviously, as asking people to participate and engage With life, with being human. So the more we can emphasize that, not just with the children and the teachers, but with the parents. So get curious. What are you curious about? And and, uh, don't be afraid of it. Ask those questions.
0: And um, you were also mentioning that now your sixth, seventh, and eighth class has a waiting list whereas previously kids would drop out. Is that a fair term, around fourth or fifth?
1: That was, uh, I think, a trend. It might have even been a little earlier. We were just looking at our enrollment and families who would begin in kindergarten, perhaps with the plan to stay all the way through eighth grade, uh, but found themselves around second or third grade asking those questions and wondering if this was still working or if it was, you know, that, like you said, that fear, is my child going to be good enough? Are they going to ha- are they going to be prepared for college life, career, all of that, and withdrawing from the school? Uh, and therefore our, our higher, our middle years, sixth, seventh and eighth grade, um, were more, weren't as highly enrolled as the other classrooms and seeing a shift now. And I think sometimes in a private school, we ride the wave or the shifts of what 's happening in a public school, and the middle school years are quite intense as we know, and families are leaving those and coming to our school for sixth grade, leading to this you know this blessing of a wait list
0: <laughs> when um, When the political climate changes, does that affect uh, your your parents? do they bring anything like that to the school? Are they concerned with how the teaching does or doesn't reinforce a particular political position when um, some uh, parents had a lot of trouble, for instance, when the president was elected. Does that get back into the school environment?
1: Yes, it does. And the day after the election, well, actually the night of, I found myself with my own personal response and quickly afterwards realizing, wait a minute, this, if what, what a gift it is to be able to go to this community tomorrow morning. And how can we create conditions for people to feel safe, to feel included, and to feel like they have a role um, to, to be a change agent? And it did trickle. And we can, we can feel the stress of the current political climate um, in our classrooms. We see it in our families And we know that education, although by, you know, IRS standards, we cannot take a political stance, education itself is a political act to, you know, uh, help children uh, not only participate in the act of being human, but in being in a democracy and active participants in that and not withdrawing from it, so... Following the election this year, or even local polit- you know po- political things that happen in Madison, we do feel that we have um, our parent body is very um, open and bring- brings whatever they 're thinking about to us <laughs> through their students or through them.
0: Now, I know that you were the first um, executive director or principal of bellwether school in Vermont, and it was funded and started by our mutual friend Ron Miller. And um, I'd like – what's the contrast or what's the difference between starting a school like that and those years and coming into a more established culture? What is the difference for that for you as an administrator?
1: Mm-hmm. That's a great question. I'm still feeling that out and noticing. Uh, what I've felt in Madison, because it's, the school has been established, we are in our 45th year, many of the teachers – I'd say more than half have been there more than 20 years. So really have a, you know, a a solid tenure there and belief in the school. So what what I've noticed, the differences between um, the two are the mere size, obviously, makes it a little bit harder to to shift. Uh, As much as we try, and I I believe in a holistic school that – it is a living and breathing organism. And the life and soul of the students, the teachers, the administrators, the parents needs to be honored. When it's that much larger, like the school in Wisconsin, it's, it's a little bit more of a dance, I would say, for lack of a better word. And bringing new ideas, both schools were very democratically, are very democratically led. So being a leader in that way is you know, it's not hierarchical, <laughs> it's just, thankfully not, uh, but it's this humility of let's talk about this. What does this mean? What does this look like? How does this connect to our mission? And inviting more space for that at the school in Madison takes a little bit longer. It takes a little bit more time. It can be a little bit more messy.
0: <laughs> In a democratic school, um, what's the curriculum and is, is there a set curriculum? And teachers who are there 20 years might have certain set curricula that might not be current. For instance, the understanding of emergence and not overdoing lesson plans and that sort of thing. It's, I don't know if it was there from many years ago, 45 years. But it's pretty much a current paradigm. so what, what how do you go about creating curriculum?
1: So the teachers uh, it's it's really a conversation. It's really a an offering, and the teachers there is no set curriculum it It emerges from the students' interests, from conversations that they're having, from Knowledge and information that teachers know um, is developmentally appropriate for a child of that age, so we know along the, the pathway, you know, learning to read and write and multiply, subtract all of those components at, at higher degrees of um, complexity. Needs to be uh, offered and put into place. So there is there is this um, construct of a developing child and honoring some of those natural learning rhythms. When it's time to get out of their way, when it's you know when they might need a little bit more facilitation or guide, and creating curriculum with them. We we like many holistic schools, it's a very it's a co-teaching model, collaborative teaching model, um, multi-age classroom. So the relationship. Between the teacher and student is nourished uh, over a number of years, and even though we're 130 students, it still has a very small school feel, and every student is known by every teacher, and vice versa, first name basis. Um, did I answer your question? You
0: did, and you did very, <laughs> very well, and I appreciate it. The um, how? What are the? Do you are you part of the staff meetings when? I'm sure if every teacher knows every student, then everybody must be talking and saying, oh, what does this child need, and here's what I saw in my class, and that sort of thing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Is that is that accurate? Is that what happens?
1: That is what happens. I'm glad you brought up staff meetings, because that is um, it is an emerging uh, design that's happening in my absence right now, which is, the, again, that trust component. The staff uh, last year, under my new leadership, one staff member was really leading staff meetings and doing a great job at it. And the staff was ready to go back to more democratic leadership. So we created a staff a staff meeting facilitation committee and we're now looking at how do you lead staff meetings? Um, what different models are there to facilitate conversations, discuss, discuss and decide, all of these different pieces? And what are the core components of a staff meeting, that we need to move our mission forward. Sometimes there are administrative things, but in every staff meeting we have uh, something called Ananaps, which is um, any announcements, inspirations from the week, share a story of something you saw, um, appreciation, so Ananaps. But we also have Kid Talk, which is so important uh, that that the adults um, holding space for the children are talking about What could be going on for a child and what neither new thing we've learned about him or her or um, just a way to hold each each child.
0: So in my experience, that takes a while. That's not just a, a one hour meeting once a week. Is that true for you, too? I mean, how much time do you devote to it? For instance, we after the winter break, we took an extra week than traditionally is taken, so our staff could just have a week together with no interference. How much time do you devote to that?
1: Well, as a whole staff of 25 sitting in one big circle, it is about two hours a week, which is not nearly enough time, right? So we've had to come up with other ways to share that might not be face-to-face or through, you know, verbal language. It might need to be written language, Um, we do build in times throughout the years for more specific level-to-level kid talk. So our K-1 classroom might sit down and meet with the second, third grade classroom and go through every child together and, and really talk about that child as a whole being so that any, you know information can be shared back and forth or with the all-school teachers. That's what we call our specials teachers because everybody's special, right? (laughs) So uh, how do they have that information when they're not with children as long of a time? But I wish we had more time for it. It's so important. But we also, you brought up the emergent system and it, it made me think of Fritav Kapra's piece on the life of leadership. I might not be saying it right, but he emphasizes the balance between a design structure, and I talked about my engineering background and like design I, I, and structure. I'm going there.
0: I, I want to <laughs> we'll go, go there. there, yes.
1: But the, the fact that even as much as we want the school to be living and breathing and moving, we need some type of design structure to to, to live within. And it can't be so designed that we're not embracing emergence either. So it's that balance. Nor can we be so open to just emergence and whatever comes um, that we lose sight of of the design that's needed.
0: I've often spoken about just making a circle and saying that's a boundary. And let's talk about what's outside the boundary. But inside, it's fractal. We can do any number of creative activities. But we all know certain things are just outside the boundary. And that gives us the, both the freedom of interacting and also knowing there is a boundary that we really all of us agree we don't want to cross.
1: I love that analogy.
0: Yeah, it's really simple, too.
1: Because there's the, right, the freedom with structure, right? Yeah. So we can be free if we know that container's there that we'll bump up against.
0: And we all have the right to say that looks out of bounds.
1: Mm. But we're
0: all much more concerned with the creative field in the middle. Mm-hmm. Like that. It's teaching story time. Briefly, teaching stories invite us to see the world with a new perspective, often featuring a wise person, a wise fool, or a trickster animal. They can be humorous and often have many shades of meaning shining throughout the story. I have told teaching stories for the past 40 years. And I love them and I have to tell you, each time I tell one, I learn much more myself. This story is called Changing Our Vision. There was a very wealthy man who was bothered by severe eye pain. He consulted many physicians and was being treated by several. He did not stop consulting a galaxy of medical experts. He consumed heavy loads of drugs and underwent hundreds of injections. But the ache in his eyes persisted with more vigor than ever before. At last, a monk who was supposed to be an expert in teaching such patients was called for by the suffering man. The monk understood his problem and said that for some time he should concentrate only on green colors and not to let his eye fall on any other colors. It was a strange prescription, but... He was desperate and decided to try it. The millionaire got together a group of painters and purchased barrels of green paint and directed that every object his eye was likely to fall upon be painted green, just as the monk had directed. When the monk came to visit him after a few days, the millionaire's servants ran with buckets of green paint and poured it on him, since he was in a red dress lest their master see any other color and his eye ache would come back. Hearing this, the monk laughed and said, If only you had purchased a pair of green spectacles worth just a few dollars, you could have saved these walls and trees and pots and all the other articles and also could have saved a huge share of your fortune. You cannot paint the world green. Let's have some fun interpreting this teaching story. Become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash remarkableeducators and you have access to our detailed comments on how this story applies to education and parenting. Of course, that's just our perspective. The fun comes with community dialogue as the many shades of the teaching story come alive. See you there. So I want to go back. Um, did I get that right? Biomedical engineering. Did I hear that yes. right? Okay, so yes. you blew my mind when you said that. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, tell us, tell us a little bit about that, and also, however, does that translate <laughs> to be a good, a, a, such a successful holistic education administrator?
1: It's a great question and, and one I've come, often looked back, right, 2020s hindsight, like how did these dots all connect? And oftentimes in life, right, that's, that's when we see the connection, not while they're happening. But I, I went to a ver- an, an independent school for kindergarten through eighth grade uh, that nurtured myself and my Which soul. one? It was in western Pennsylvania um, called the Valley School of Ligonier. And uh, it was on 400 acres in the woods outside, you know, about 40 miles southeast of Pittsburgh. So lots of time outdoors, exploring. And following that, I went to a very traditional public high school with all that comes with that. And I think I lost sight of my inner gifts and passions and was told, because I am strong at math and science, you should be an engineer. This is, you know, these are your gifts. And and. I went to school to become an engineer and just did not feel connected to it. Uh, later on though, um, I saw I started to see that passion again in how things work, systems thinking, design, all of that and decided to go back to school um, at the University of Vermont to get my master's in biomedical engineering. Simultaneously, this is where you're going (laughs) to – my husband and I owned a restaurant together. So all of these experiences, the business side of running a restaurant, right, staffing, budgeting, inventory, um, the engineering piece, systems design, analytical analytical thinking, um, all those pieces, right, that come with engineering, math. (laughs) And my passion for children and education, it just – Made sense. And when I found Bellwether, I honestly, and I'm sure like you, when I read Ron's words, I literally felt that ping in my heart of this is where it all comes together for me. And a community that's practicing um, its philosophy is a thing to behold. So that's where, so yeah, so running the business of a school, right? Like I said, the design structure needs to be there, like your circle, uh, so that the teachers can have their creative freedom. They don't have to worry about the budget as best, that, right? Like allow my strengths in engineering and budgeting to provide the structure behind you as beautiful teachers to do what you need to do, to do what you're meant to do.
0: Um, you know my daughter Amber, don't you? Or you spoken with her?
1: Amber and I have spoken, yes.
0: Right. Well, I don't know if you know, she was trained as a marine biologist. <laughs> Yes, I, yes, and in her favorite course, one of her favorite course was statistics, which to me is a way <laughs> far away from favorite. <laughs> and, um, and so she, was, and she had the job, the dream job of the mid-90s of being on the ocean, counting blue whales. In fact, I have to tell you a funny story real quick. So she's out there on the ocean in a zodiac, and a blue whale comes up next to her next to their boat, and blows its nose.
1: Oh, my goodness. Can
0: you imagine what a blue whale blowing its nose is like? And they were rained on by whale slot. Anyway, On the boat. boat. Anyway, it's a funny story. But she's up in the belly of a plane going over the ocean, and she hears the chatter of the other scientists and has been observing them. And right there the whales are fine. The whales don't need us to be doing this. We need to be doing something else with one another. And so she turned her back on that career mm. and came over to the ed- holistic education world.
1: Wow. So that pivotal moment.
0: Right. And Isn't it so interesting? That's
1: so interesting. And that moment with the blue whale. But I-, I think that is when we start to listen to ourselves. And as I was saying earlier, that... Holistic education asks us to you know, realign ourselves with the natural way of being and with our own inner journey, our thoughts, our feelings, all of those pieces. And I think, like Amber, that was happening for me in the engineering lab. I was in there doing all these mechanics and calibrating machines, and I thought, what is going on? I miss people. I need that. And, and it's not to say that the engineers who are doing that, like, are 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 missing something but for me I had to turn my back on that field and channel myself in a different direction in order for my inner light to keep shining
0: Do you have a lot of day-to-day contact with the kids?
1: I do <laughs> I do. I do. I mean
0: I know as an administrator yeah. that can get away from us. <laughs>
1: That can get away from us, and I always wish uh, that I could be in the classrooms more. So I, I try to build it into my schedule ahead of time. But I also try to make my area. As inviting as possible, I think you know the teachers at at Wingra, I don't. We we just built some new administrative offices, so the walls were very white and you know very bland and sterile. And I said, let's paint the walls, let's add the plants, let's do as you were saying the aesthetic environment. The beauty um, just brings that inner being fourth. So kids know when they come in my office, there's going to be blocks to play with and all sorts of fun things, because I'm hoping they come to play, not just to be with they have a a different choice to make.
0: A 10-year-old said to me, are you sure you're the principal? I never met a principal like you before. (laughs) Are you sure? Are you sure? (laughs) That's your job? Let me double check here. Let me make sure. You're the guy.
1: Well, at, at Bellwether, because our building was so small, right, we shared spaces, and my office ended up being in the little nook in the library. I
0: know. You know, I saw it being built. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah.
1: So, in the little fish—so, I was just tucked in with all the books, which I loved, but the preschoolers, when they asked, you know, oh, who's Debbie? Oh, she's the librarian. It's like, <laughs> yes, I'm just the librarian. That's it. <laughs> I'm great. I'm just the librarian. thats yes. Yeah, so— That connection is key. Don't you agree? Oh, it's it's
0: really, really important. And I had a really hard time with it and Mm -hmm. struggled endlessly to get back. But I had fundraising um, responsibilities as well. Mm -hmm. And that's a time eater. Mm -hmm. And so I found myself constantly pulled. And my staff was also not happy at the little time little amount of time that i could spend in the classroom mm-hmm.
1: that i would say that's if i was to hear feedback from them they would probably say i hope you get in the rooms more yeah but because it does inspire us to go raise the funds or whatever we need to do if we can find the time
0: do you do fundraising
1: i i do a little that my board is a very active uh engaged board and uh we have a Around me is a strong administrative staff, which I did not have at Bellwether. So this is new for me as well. It was just, at Bellwether, that's another difference. It was the head of school um, and a part-time other office person that helped, and then the teachers. So I was balancing many, you know, admissions, finances, marketing, all of those. And I arrived at this other school in Madison, Wingra, and... There was a business manager and uh, admissions and marketing and development. And I had to relearn my own role in the school was instead of micromanaging, how do you support these people to support what is? But that that's,
0: was hard. <laughs> yeah, that's hard to learn, but incredible to have.
1: It's incredible to have. And I, I think... Oh, throughout my first year, I found myself probably too involved in each of those. Oh, this is how I used to do it, and then slowly started pulling away. So, realizing the gift um, and maximizing on it.
0: At uh, Wingra, do you uh, have any um, neurologically challenged kids? We do. How? What, what do you notice about that? How do you? What? Just anything you can say about that.
1: Hmm. Um. That's a great question i we the opportunity for all community members to learn from how did you word it neuro atypical okay neuro yeah uh, students that it's an incredible learning opportunity and we also need to realize with our limited resources that we can't op- provide th- the most ideal environment for many students. Um, for some we can but we have to keep ourselves in balance and uh, I found myself in the first couple uh, oper- the first few times at Wingro whenever a student it was either on the autism spectrum or with executive function whatever it may be adD um, uh, oppositional defiance, the teachers were, would be the first to feel that, right? Like, why is he or she not participating? Or this doesn't look and feel the same as the other students. And I always go back to, well, be curious about that. Like, what why, what do you notice about that? And why is that not okay? And um, so asking the teacher themselves to think about, like, well, why do I need Johnny to be in morning meeting every morning? And is it okay that he's not? And what's the impact on community? If he's not. If, so I think it's, it's a conversation. And uh, small schools without, you know, we don't have a We don't have a student support specialist. We don't have all those other kind of uh, extra sets of hands on staff. We can provide what we can provide. But if we are finding that we can't meet their needs, the biggest gift we can offer them is to advocate for that child and suggest a different school. Um, or put as many supports in place that we can. Train our teachers as best we can, and, and whatever it may be, if it's sensory needs, can are there materials we can buy? Is there learning that we we can do? Um,
0: we we had lots of success. The place where it broke down is if the uh, atypical child um, uh, disrupted the class, um, and you know, a lot of us have the squeaky wheel. Uh, movement in us. We see a child who's struggling, and we want to make sure they're okay, so we spend a lot more time with them than we might. Oh, Mary's okay. She's got this one wired, and we don't really pay attention to what that means to Mary and what does wired mean. It's some sort of preconception we have, and do you see that at all? And what, you know, so... They would love. There was no problem interpersonally with the neuroatypical kids, unless they disrupted other kids' learning, Mm -hmm. and that became a tough place for us.
1: Mm -hmm. We see that too, and and the the uh, I don't want to use the word toll, but it does weigh on the either the staff member that is
0: on everyone on
1: everybody, sure. uh, Whether and and that can be hard, and and you can feel. Um, unsuccessful. If you, you know, why aren't I reaching him, or why isn't his behavior changing? Uh, so, I think that is an ongoing conversation right now. And and how do we best support that? So, did I answer that? Yeah,
0: one? you really did. And and I know for me, well, there's a, I don't, I don't know how to say. It. If I use the word knowledge, I mean it in a being sense. Mm-hmm. And there's a knowledge of suffering all the time. Mm. And then in that situation, that it sort of amplified, which is okay with me. I It's actually the heat that composts my separateness.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But um, it's, it's strong in a school. And yet I've had experience with the, those new early typical kids mainstreamed. And it makes me want to fall over and die. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's terrible. It's really not okay. And I've actually had teachers from that world, incredibly wonderful, compassionate teachers who want to come and work at SUMA because we treat people so differently. Well, I'd like to ask you, I know we're out of time, but I'd like to ask you, there's so many people now with the... um, who have seen some of the confusions in the more mainstream education and who also in themselves are starting to ask themselves different kinds of questions about what's really meaningful, how does education fit in, how do I do this with my kid, that kind of thing, what message do you have for them, whether they're going to be teachers or parents that will allow them to step into a wider perspective than simply mainstream education?
1: Wow. (laughs) I would say that, um, let me think here. Holding the the bigger vision of the hopes and dreams you have for your child, your future, your own life, um, while simultaneously zooming down to the moment by moment. So how do we hold those in balance um how am i in this very moment right now this present
0: so an introspection or a personal awareness of of our own meaning and our own desire will lead us to a better choice
1: yes exactly and knowing that it's it's not a straight path. It's not growth and learning is not just from here to there. That's a belief system. So starting to, the more we're opening up to these questions and ways of being, how are we unpacking these boxes of conditioning and belief systems and showing that vulnerability um, so that simultaneously, it's it's hard to see all the way there sometimes. So it's, what can I do right here today? There was um, a quote that someone had told me, and I think it was on a mug that said, save the world and floss today. And don't forget to <laughs> floss. So it's like, but holding both of those at the same time, this idea that if I take these baby steps every day in the moment while holding on to Without holding on so much, so that it is, but we need we need a little bit of both. So,
0: thank you, thank Thank you you so so much. much. It's It's so cool,
1: so great to be together.
0: Meetings with remarkable educators is brought to you in part by our friends and supporters on Patreon. If you enjoy our podcast and want access to enriching gifts for parents and educators, please visit patreon.com slash remarkableeducators and consider becoming a patron. Your support means the world to us and will allow us to continue this essential project. Our sound engineer is Dimitri Young. Our webmaster is Nathan Young and our all-important social media maven is Cleo Young. All podcasts are transcribed with show notes and can be found at remarkable-educators.com. This is Ba Lovemore reminding you that holistic relationships with children leads to joy and self-knowledge with the adults in their lives. With respect for you and for children everywhere. See you next time.